I have to be honest, I struggled with writing this week's episode, but it's not because of the content being too graphic or anything like that. It was because the story of what happened to Johnny Gosh and who was responsible for it keeps multiplying. And I actually had a moment this week where I was like, can I really make sense out of all of this? Every time I think the story is going in one new direction, what's actually happening is it's sprouting off into 10 different directions. So I sort of felt like I hit a wall almost. Like that feeling of, I just don't know which way to go with this. But then I thought about the whole reason Johnny's story got to me the way it did. I know what it's like to be 12 and to be scared and alone. And I know what it's like to feel like you've been forgotten about. If I had vanished when I was that age, I wouldn't have wanted anybody to forget about me. And I would have wanted everyone to keep trying to find out what really did happen to me and not just let it stay some convoluted mystery forever. I'm lucky enough to be in a position that I have a voice. So I think the kid in me wants to give a voice to a kid who doesn't have one and hasn't had one in a really long time. So we're going to pick up right where we left off the last time, and I'm going to introduce a new name today into this story. I mentioned this person briefly in my last episode, and that person is Sam Soda. I myself was not familiar with who this person was until I would say about a month ago. A listener messaged me on Facebook and asked me if I knew who he was. I didn't. I had to Google his name. And then, coincidentally... I had begun emailing back and forth with some other listeners, and then another person brought up the name Sam Soda. And I'm like, okay, in all the research I had done on the Johnny Gosh case for the past year and a half, that name had eluded me. So at the suggestion of quite a few listeners, I started to do my research on Sam Soda. When we focus on the initial abduction, before Inside Edition, before America's Most Wanted, before this story blew up into what it is today, Sam Soda, in fact, appears to be one of the most key players in the very early stages of this case. So in my first segment today, we're going to talk about who exactly was this man, Sam Soda, his connections to Des Moines, and how exactly he factors into the Johnny Gosh case. This is episode 15 of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Demio. Jay Soda was a private investigator from Des Moines, Iowa at the time that Johnny Gosh disappeared, and he did eventually come into the picture to investigate Johnny's case. It's important to note, Noreen Gosh did not approach Sam Soda to get involved. It was Sam Soda who approached Noreen, inserting himself into this case, telling her that he could get her information on her son's kidnapping. The type of person that Soda was based on the research I've been doing, is that he's your very stereotypical old school law enforcement type. What I mean by that is he was able to come into Johnny's case uninvited, essentially muscle his way in, sort of a loudmouth type, not someone who was willing to accept any protest to his getting involved. 
He was also someone who clearly had connections to a seedy underworld. I don't know precisely who his connections were. He was very good at keeping that part of himself under wraps. I've mentioned Eugene Martin a number of times on this podcast, the other paperboy for the Des Moines Register who was abducted on August 12, 1984. Well, according to reports, Soda knew ahead of time that Eugene was going to be abducted. I don't often talk about the book that Noreen Gosh self-published in the year 2000, which was titled Why Johnny Can't Come Home. The reason for that is because it's out of print now. I have not read it myself, though I have read snippets of it online. And the problem with Noreen's book is that it's full of information that cannot be corroborated. But she does make the claim in there that two weeks before Eugene Martin disappeared, Sam Soda called her and told her that another paperboy was going to be abducted. Sure enough, two weeks later, Eugene was gone. So let's say that that is accurate. How would he know that long in advance that another paperboy was going to get kidnapped unless this was an organized ring that existed in Des Moines and he had his own connections to that ring? I've been reading through a lot of old issues online of the Des Moines Register, and there's one from February 13th, 1991, which has an article about Sam Soda by staff writer Frank Santiago. And it explains how shortly after Eugene Martin was kidnapped in 1984, while delivering his Sunday morning papers, Soda organized a group, which I mentioned briefly in my last episode, called Stolen Children Are Reported Every Day. Which you'll notice, the acronym that you get out of that is SCARED. It's described as being an anti-smut group, which campaigned against child pornography. And Soda had always maintained that the disappearance of Eugene Martin and Johnny Gosh had been the work of child pornographers. So with this anti-smut group, SCARED, Soda would hold these conferences talking in detail about child pornography that cops and other law enforcement would attend, and he would show actual pictures of child pornography at these conferences. And so here's the thing. This is the early to mid-80s. There's no internet. There's no email. The only ways to get child pornography back during this time is to either create it yourself or to know people to buy it off of in person or through the mail. And here he is showing these images at conferences full of people in law enforcement. And let's not gloss over what I just said a second ago, that he always maintained that Eugene Martin and Johnny Gosh were both abducted by child pornographers. Again, this is the mid-80s. Johnny has been missing for a little over two years. Eugene has been missing for less than one year. Where are we in either one of those investigations? Nowhere. This is years before Paul Benassi entered the picture with his claims of being in the back of that Ford Fairmont. So with both investigations at a standstill, how is Sam Soda able to make the jump that both cases are the work of child pornographers? Now at this point, you might be saying to yourself, well, he's a private investigator. It's his job to find these things out. But what I would say to that is, well, if he did acquire this information just through good investigative work, and he established this anti-smut group in an effort to stop child pornography, and he held these conferences where he showed the pornography to law enforcement, why did nothing happen in the Johnny Gosh or Eugene Martin cases? The Des Moines Register article from 1991 goes on to say, quote, Soda announced in 1985 that he was no longer giving lectures on behalf of Scared, and the organization disbanded. He said the group had fulfilled its mission by alerting the public to child pornography and abuse. End quote. So that's it? One year in existence, and they're closing up shop? 
they fulfilled their mission. So what was their mission then? Just to alert the public that child pornography exists, but not to do anything beyond that? So this is pure conjecture, but is it possible that the people who would attend these conferences were only there because they wanted to see the child pornography too? Maybe they wanted to see more, acquire some for themselves even? Is it possible that Sam Soda knew that, and the reason that he himself was never investigated or questioned in the Johnny Gosh or Eugene Martin cases was because this gave him a means to blackmail them? And again, I have to be clear, this is pure conjecture based solely on this information that I've just begun to scratch the surface on. But it sure does seem odd to me that both investigations would just stop cold right there. So what would happen next for Sam Soda? Well, in 1985, he ran for Des Moines City Council. In a Des Moines Register article dated September 18, 1985, reporter Charles Bullard writes, quote, Sam Soda, a private investigator who gained recognition as a crusader against child pornography, announced his candidacy Tuesday for the third ward seat on the Des Moines City Council. I feel I am the most qualified person to represent the taxpayers of Des Moines, Soda said at a news conference. The article goes on to say, Soda served in the U.S. Marine Corps for 12 years, seeing combat in Vietnam and earning two Purple Hearts, two Bronze Stars, and the Joint Services Commendation. He worked in the Polk County Sheriff's Office for two years and in sales for four years before starting his own firm, Central State Investigators LTD. Soda describes himself as a very outspoken conservative and says he plans to run a law and order campaign. As long as I am on that council, the residents of this city can be assured that there will be no cutbacks as far as protection of our citizens, end quote. Now, you heard me say earlier that it seems to me Soda was a loudmouth arrogant type. Well, you're really going to agree with me when you hear this quote from the Des Moines Register in an article dated October 10th, 1985, by staff writer Frank Santiago. The headline reads, Soda claim to war medals false, Marines say. The article reads, quote, Sam Soda, who said when he announced his candidacy for the Des Moines City Council that he was decorated with two Purple Hearts and two Bronze Stars as a Marine in Vietnam, now says he was not awarded those medals. I don't have the medals, but I think I was entitled to them. If it's a big deal, then make a big deal out of it. Frankly, I don't give a dot 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 said Soda, a private investigator. The Purple Hearts and the Bronze Stars, which are medals for valor, were listed in a three-page press release distributed by the 43-year-old Soda at his Central State Investigator's LTD office last month, end quote. Well, if that's not arrogance, then I'm not sure what is. So you see how this guy had connections to many people in Des Moines, by which I mean law enforcement, local politicians, he had access to child pornography, he inserts himself into the Johnny Gosh case, he tells Noreen two weeks before Eugene Martin disappears that another paperboy is going to be abducted, and he states publicly that Johnny and Eugene's disappearances were the work of child pornographers. And all of this is in the most early stages of the Johnny Gosh case. All the people that we've talked about so far on this podcast, Paul Benassi, Michael Aquino, Lawrence King, none of these people are in the lexicon of the Johnny Gosh case at this point. So for me, this is one more thing that leads me to sort of turn a corner as far as this case is concerned. Maybe it was something much more local, like Occam's razor. Typically, the most obvious theory is the one that turns out to be correct. 
But again, that's where I struggle because with everything that we've learned so far, there are so many different directions that this story can go. So that's what we're going to talk about in my next segment. We're going to try to compare the two different avenues which stick out the most in my mind as to what happened to Johnny Gosh. That's up next. When I first started to research the Johnny Gosh case, I gathered my information the way most people have. That's by reading the numerous articles online, watching the documentaries, watching the endless amount of videos on YouTube. And you can't deny that after almost 36 years, it's become an epic story. You have this case of this innocent 12-year-old kid just trying to deliver Sunday newspapers, getting snatched in the early morning hours right off the street of his quiet, suburban West Des Moines neighborhood. And from that initial kidnapping, the case just gets colder and colder with each passing day. There were no leads, unless you want to count the dollar bill which had the words, I am alive written on it and signed Johnny Gosh, or the woman who reportedly had a young boy run up to her at a convenience store and say, my name is Johnny Gosh and I was kidnapped before two men grabbed him and shoved him into a car. Reports of sightings here and there, nothing that law enforcement felt was enough to follow up on. The first substantial break in the case came about seven years after the fact, when Paul Benassi came forward from his prison cell and told his attorney that he was in the backseat of the Ford Fairmont that took Johnny. That's where the story picks up, and that's what's universally believed by everyone who has followed Johnny's case, that each of Paul Benassi's claims is credible. But think for a second about the domino effect that Benassi's claims created in the Johnny Gosh timeline. It's only after that that you have Inside Edition getting involved, America's Most Wanted, the books, the articles, the Franklin scandal, the conspiracy theories involving Ted Gunderson and the Illuminati and MKUltra and Michael Aquino. Let's stop all of that for a second. Let's take Paul Benassi and let's just put him off to the side for a minute. Let's go back to the local level, before Benassi inserted himself into this case. When I first read Yellowbag's accounts a few weeks ago, it made the story real again. It was not the sensationalized story that we've become accustomed to, international pedophile rings with connections to high-level politicians and the White House and whatnot. No, Yellowbag had a first-hand perspective. Someone at the Des Moines Register that he knew, a circulation manager by the name of Wilbur Milhouse, who would actually say out loud regarding Johnny, nothing would have happened to him if he just kept his mouth shut. Then, as it turns out, Milhouse would be arrested on sexual abuse charges, and it would be discovered that he had the names and addresses of 2,200 boys in his possession. 
And then I started reading up on Sam Soda, a private investigator in Des Moines who approached Noreen Gosh, inserting himself into the case and told Noreen that another paperboy was going to go missing two weeks before it happened. He had child pornography in his possession, enough of it that he could spend a year holding conferences, showing it to law enforcement with this group that he created. Stolen children are reported every day. Yellowbag has no doubt in his mind that Wilbur Milhouse was involved, even if he was by no stretch of the imagination some mastermind who planned the whole thing. He also believes that Johnny was probably killed right away, and that a good place to dispose of a body would be in an area where Milhouse lived, known as the Bottoms. So here's the first plausible timeline that I want to present to you. Maybe Johnny began talking to other paperboys or to staff at the Des Moines Register about Wilbur Milhouse's inappropriate behavior. And rather than fire Milhouse or press charges or even let any of the carrier's parents know, they decide to quietly transfer Milhouse to a district on the opposite side of town. Milhouse was seethingly angry about this. Now, we already know by Yellowbag's own account that Milhouse was known to hang out with some shady characters. It is plausible that Milhouse and Sam Soda knew each other, so maybe Milhouse knew someone in his circle who could arrange for Johnny to be abducted, knowing exactly what time he would be up to deliver his papers, knowing what streets he would be walking down, and that was how the abduction was organized for the morning of September 5th, 1982. And Sam Soda, even if he wasn't directly involved, maybe he knew who did it. So what does a seedy, manipulative person do when they have this kind of information? They pose as one of the good guys. And that's why Soda inserted himself as a private investigator on the case. It takes the heat off of him because immediately you see that he's on the side of angels. And maybe Johnny was killed right away, which would mean that Paul Benassi's claims would have to have been concocted, perhaps to make himself look like a good, reformed citizen in the eyes of the public. And it would also mean that the person who showed up at Noreen's door in the middle of the night in 1997 was just a very convincing lookalike, their motives unknown. And maybe Johnny's case did not involve Michael Aquino or the Franklin scandal, but those people and events only became attached to the Johnny Gosh case a decade after the fact, when the story had already begun to go off the rails. In other words, maybe it was a local pedophile ring existing within Des Moines all along, and maybe Johnny's life ended right then at the age of 12. But let's explore my other train of thought now. I think regardless of anything, local people were involved. And it only makes sense that there had to be people specifically at the Des Moines Register who were in on it. The person driving the Ford Fairmont knew what time and on what streets to find Johnny. After he initially pulled up to him and asked, Hey kid, where's 86th Street? When Johnny walked away, the man flashed the dome light on the car two times before he drove off. It was at that point the other man came out from between two houses and followed Johnny down the sidewalk. So let's bring Paul Benassi back into the picture. Let's go with the original theory that the claims he made in 1989 were accurate, that at the time of the kidnapping, he was crouched down on the floor of the back seat of the Ford Fairmont, and when the other man grabbed Johnny to throw him into the car, it was Benassi's job to hold the chloroform over his face until he passed out. I want to read to you an article that was shared with me from the Des Moines Register dated October 29, 1991, again by staff writer Frank Santiago. It talks about the Johnny Gosh case and Paul Benassi's reported involvement. Quote, 
An inmate at the Lincoln Correctional Center said here Monday that he helped abduct Johnny Gosh after the newspaper carrier's picture was selected hours before by his kidnappers in a Des Moines hotel room. And it goes on to talk about Benassi being in the back seat ready with the chloroform. If we jump ahead a little bit, it talks about the ringleaders and their meeting in this hotel room. Quote, Sitting in a reception area of the Correctional Center, Benassi said that he met one of the ringleaders, a man named Emilio, when he was a youngster playing in Carter Lake. Emilio was a heavyset Latino who had several tattoos, including one of a two-headed dragon on his arm, he said. All the individuals who participated were identified to him only by first names, he added. Emilio, accompanied by a youngster, Mike, about 15, and Benassi, met men named Sam and Tony in a Des Moines motel Benassi said. In the motel room, Benassi, who said that he was unaware of what was to happen, saw the men looking over photographs of carrier boys. I looked at them and I saw that they were all carrying newspaper bags. There were several different boys. Sam was saying to Emilio, you could get $5,000 for this one. And some of them, they were talking about $25,000 or $50,000. End quote. So maybe it was a more widespread pedophile ring that Johnny was sold into, and Paul Benassi's claims have been credible all along. That would mean that Johnny was taken to the house in Sioux City for the first two weeks, and then eventually sold to the buyer who brought him to the house in Colorado. So if that is all possible, can we not say that it's also possible Johnny did steal a car and escape along with a group of other boys inside the ring, and that they did hide out at one of the boys' parents' house, and Johnny did come visit his mother in the middle of the night in 1997. You see how I'm stuck at this fork in the road now. I want you to really think about those two avenues that I just talked about. And don't just jump to whichever route you're leaning more towards at this moment, because I myself go back and forth quite a bit on this. So in my next episode, we're going to delve into this further. I'm going to share more from the article I just read from, and maybe we can get these two roads to converge into one that makes sense. In the meantime, you can get in touch with me by email at fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet me at Sarah E. Dimio. Faded Out is on Facebook at facebook.com slash fadedoutpodcast. And we do also have a closed group that you can request to join where we discuss the details of the case. It's called Followers of Faded Out. I will be back with episode 16 next week. And I do apologize for the gap between episodes this past week. Thank you for your patience. As always, Faded Out is recorded at the Connecticut School of Broadcasting in Farmington, Connecticut. Thank you for joining me for episode 15. I'm Sarah Dimio. See you next time.